This is a conversation with Michael Hiller. Hi, Michael. Hello, Serge. So, uh, your book on uh, body psychotherapy, uh, history, concepts, and methods is coming out in the U.S., translated from the French. And uh, maybe that's a good opportunity for us to talk a little bit about how you work. Mm -hmm. Well, first thing, just um, I'd like to thank Marcel Duclos, who did the translation, mm -hmm. because that was a lot of uh, work. But yes, um, uh, yes, it's, it's, it's a good way of... Uh, the book, in a way, groups everything I did in my life. So when I wrote the book, I discovered what I was doing. Mm -hmm. And I shaped it. And so maybe it's a good way of... of describing uh, the great variety of methods I use. Yeah, yeah, so the, the book was a way of putting, uh, uh, you know, of thinking about the larger context of, of mm -hmm. where you work and, yeah. So we're not so much talking about the book now as we're talking about how you work and maybe uh, one way to start is to talk a little bit of where you're coming from, how you were trained, uh, mm -hmm. you know, how you came to be who you are now. So my basic training was in cognitive psychology, mm -hmm. developmental cognitive psychology with uh, in Geneva with the team of, of Jean Piaget. Uh, I was there at the end of his teaching period, and then his team continued the, the teaching. But I was already interested in theater very much, and therefore the relation between body and mind was a, a general interest, uh, which had also been triggered by, uh, by Nietzsche, And uh, then I started doing Tai Chi, yoga, psychoanalysis, meditation, on top of doing some Piaget work. And uh, finally I decided it would be good to have a, like, a parallel training in practical uh, emotional uh, dynamics because Piaget had, didn't talk of emotions at all. He talked very beautifully of the mind, of the body, of gestures, but not of emotions. So... I ended up my studies at the end of the 70s being both a uh, body psychotherapist and a uh, uh, experimental psychologist. Mm -hmm. And then for my PhD, um, I tried to synthesize the two fields by working on, uh, on nonverbal communication. I did a thesis on postural dynamics uh, and social status where I tried to combine, in my way of coding body movements, what I had learned from methods like Rolfing that use biomechanical ways of uh, reading the body and the sort of methods developed by people like Gregory Bateson or Adam Kendon or Siegfried Frey, with whom I did my thesis, to analyze body movement. I also integrated methods of... Uh, coding the face with uh, Paul Ekman and Wally Friesen in San Francisco. And so just if, if you see just my, my, my official development, if I can say things like that, uh, I, from the start I started combining uh, academic psychology, nonverbal communication, and body psychotherapy, mm -hmm. uh, as defined by, by Gerda Boyson School. Yeah, and you trained with her, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, <clears throat> what brought you then to uh, pay attention to not just 
what you were trained in, but the larger universe of body psychotherapy or, you know, in the case of the French book, you know, the, the title is Proulx, talk about the psychotherapies. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so a sense of all these different fields where, you know, mm -hmm. there hasn't been a unified field called body psychotherapy until relatively recently, but mm -hmm. a lot of different schools. Mm -hmm. Well, I, hesita I hesitated between uh, training in psychology and sociology. And mm -hmm. so actually I was reading a lot of sociologists like For example, uh, Bourdieu, who liked to talk of fields, social fields, of experience and ways of living and types of ways of working and so on. And uh, I also have an academic mind, which is that you should know all the op all, all the all the theories and not just one. So by by reflex, in a way, uh, I couldn't learn something without looking at competing theories. Mm -hmm. Uh, that's an academic reflex I, I, I cannot avoid. <laughs> so, so from the start, also I, I had wide interests. You know, we were in the 70s. Everybody was doing yoga and meditation and uh, uh, listening to rock and classical music at the same time. And uh, um, it, it was also, you know, you couldn't be a student in those days and just focus for one th on one theory or you would... You would be called a square person. Is that what you say in the states? Right. <laughs> yeah. So that was the general outlook. Mm -hmm. So I like learning specific methods because that's how you learn. Mm -hmm. But I didn't believe in specific uh, techniques in the sense that I didn't believe they were the only good ones. It's just that I believe that the more you can go deeply with one methods into reality the more, in fact, you will discover the real complexity of reality. Yeah, so in other words, a method is only a gateway. Um, yes. And it's nice to master it, you know, because then you have the benefit of other people's experience. Mm -hmm. But it's only a gateway because then the reality you discover is something that doesn't have anything to do with the method itself. Ex exactly. Uh, an example was when I started nonverbal communication, I thought, you know, you would learn to say, ah, oh, that's... That face means this, or that gesture means that. Mm -hmm. uh, but I did a very incredible thing in those, even in those days, although some people tried in those days, nobody does it today anymore. Mm -hmm. I, I, I started coding every single part of the body, every image of the videotapes I, I, I did nonverbal communication with. So that means if you think that there are 25 images per second, mm -hmm. I would analyze the body 25 times per second, e coding each part of the body. And then we would use uh, um, programs to analyze the data, because quickly I discovered that the yes. psychotherapy session uh, uh, manages uh, more than a million body signs between a patient and a therapist, something consciousness could never deal with. And this was a crucial experience for me, to, which shows how going into details makes you go much further than what your consciousness ever imagined. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I don't think many people realize how many, how much information is transferred in a simple conversation between two people. Right. So that's interesting because, um, in a way, very similar to the point you made about the specifics and, uh, you know, uh, having the experience of mm -hmm. actually coding mm -hmm. um, you know, body language, nonverbal communication, 
and having then decided the further perversion, if you want, that you were not just going to code a moment, but you know every sequence of image in the in the uh, uh, in the second, and then every part of the body. Mm-hmm. Um, you the for you the experience of the complexity of mm-hmm. body language and moment by moment experience is not just a concept, but uh, it is an experience where you actually lived enormous amounts of time dealing with that. Exactly. Yeah. For example, I, I published an article on depression. I had used a, a coding system called Facial Action Coding System of Paul Ekman and, and Friesen, and Wally Friesen, where we analyze every muscle of the face, which is much less than the whole body, of course, mm-hmm. although the, the face is where most of the action is. And I, I, I had analyzed each muscle of the face, as is usually done in facts, and compared uh, 12 uh, patients. I just coded about uh, 20 seconds of film. And I showed that there was not two depressive who had the same expression. Mm. There wasn't one single unit apart from eye blinks that could be found on all the depressive patients I had st- analyzed which shows how even if you try to study a very uh, well-defined population, it's very difficult to find a characteristic that will endure into detail, through detailed research. You need to look very, very grossly at things to have the impression that all the depressives are the same. But that would actually be an interesting question. So, uh, in a way, with the diversity of people, when you look mm-hmm. at the very specific, you know, mm-hmm. what is it that in our mind um, ha- helps us find a pattern that mm-hmm. we have this impression that they're similar? Well, I, the answer to that question, I found working with Siegfried Frey on nonverbal communication and depressive patients. He and some of his colleagues, like Wally Dorr, who's, uh, who's also a body psychotherapist now, um, studied depressives, and they tried to check the hypothesis that depressive patients move less than non-depressive patients, which is a well-known cliche on, behavioral behavior, uh, mm-hmm. on, on, on the behavior of depressive patients. And they found no significant difference. Hmm. But what they did find is that the depressive patients, when they were really depressed, had less complex movements. For example, if my head goes up and down, this is one dimension of mobility. Mm -hmm. If it goes sideways, left to right, it's a second dimension of mobility. So depressive patients have a tendency of using the one-dimensional movements Mm -hmm. more than four-dimensional movements. Mm. So what happens with a therapist is bizarre. He doesn't he doesn't see those compl- those very complex sensory motor patterns. What he does, but but we know the brain can perceive them. Uh, in the brain, let's say the the data is processed to be exact, because one doesn't say the brain perceives, but they do uh, data management. Mm-hmm. So the data management of the brain creates in the therapist the impression that the patient moves less or has less activity. It's a fuzzy impression. He has just the impression, oh, the patient seems less active or something. Right, and, right. And so what he then tells everyone uh, is 
he moves less. Because what's really, what really works is the impression. Right. The clinical impression, there's something less, but I don't know what it is. But instead of saying there's something less and I don't know what it is, uh, they try to look very technocratic and scientific, and so they say he moves less. And you have thousands of psychiatry professors who have published books and have wrote, written articles on, <laughs> on, uh, on depressed, depressive patients that move less. But apart from the very obvious ones that don't move at all, um, it hasn't proven correct if you really start looking at people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so I, I do believe in something like uh, a therapeutic instinct or a therapeutic uh, uh, form of awareness, but it's an impression. It's not something you can pinpoint. Yeah. And that impression, after some time, can become pretty reliable. Mm-hmm. So... So something, you know, we're talking about the way you work mm-hmm. with your patients and how, uh, and, um, and so your, your sense of yourself is somebody who is, uh, very much paying attention to what happens, not just what the words are, but, you know, what is happening verbally, non-verbally, bodily, um, but also has a sense of, um, the, in a way, some limitations of what you observe that mm-hmm. you're not going to be able to really uh, you know, there's a lot of stuff that's not going to be actually, uh, you know, captured. Yeah. But on the other hand, that some general impression that is very useful and very, uh, you know, very, mm-hmm. very uh, uh, positive, very appropriate mm-hmm. is going to emerge. Yeah. Well, that's what I, I always tell my patients. I don't understand why they change. Mm-hmm. Most of them change. Not all, but most. And when they tell me, how did you manage that? I says, I just have confidence that the type of process I propose to my patients somehow works. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The, the mechanisms are much too complex for your consciousness and my consciousness. Therefore, I don't ask my patients to understand everything that happens to them. I teach them to observe that things are happening and not to need explanations for everything. So, you know, when you say observing, uh, yeah. what kinds of things do we observe? I, and I'm assuming, of course, that you're not doing the same thing with every patient. Every mm-hmm. is different. You interact with people differently. But what kinds of things do you help your patients observe? Well, there I stay. I, I'm, I stay very concrete. For example, I always reread the first session mm-hmm. when the person explains why they come. And very often we observe that uh, all the reasons they came for don't exist anymore. For example, uh, they were not married, now they're married. They were out of a job, now they have a job. Mm-hmm. Uh, things, things in their life at a very concrete level have changed. Mm-hmm. It's not some bizarre intellectual thing. There's also, uh, um, for example, I, I work a lot with dreams. And there are dreams that are relevant at a certain moment of the therapy, like once there was a lady, she kept dreaming things like a, uh, a, a red Indian is trying to capture a fish. <laughs> and that seemed highly relevant to our relationship. And also to the reason why she couldn't find a man, because every time there was a man, she would sort of slip out of his hand. Mm. And so we started talking of that image a lot. And somehow, after six months... Uh, 
we both decided together well, that image isn't relevant anymore. That's not where she was anymore. There were other issues. So those are the, the, the type of transformations I'm watchful for. Or, for example, um, one day I was doing massage to a woman, mm-hmm. and I noticed she had a good back muscles, and she had good arm muscles. Mm-hmm. But the muscles that connect the arms to the, the back mm-hmm. were completely hypotonic. They were uh, like gelatin. They had no consistency. And we started talking about how connecting how to connect the strength that is in her back to what she does with her hands with people. Mm. And she had some trouble uh, finding a good job or um, a place where she could express her creativity and things like that. And as we started massaging those muscles and talking about what was happening in the body while she was massaging, uh, uh, while we were massaging these muscles, somehow something connected. The muscles became a bit firmer, mm-hmm. and uh, what she was expressing to people and her way of interacting with people uh, brought her closer to her aims. So somehow she was becoming more efficient. Mm-hmm. But those are not things that I can't tell you why those things, you know, what are all the the connections in the organism that created that increased capacity. But I just observe that it happens. Right. And then we, we then I always, what I, what, what I tell, well, we're in a French-speaking country, so I says, let's drink an imaginary champagne bottle to that change. Mm-hmm. Because sometimes after two years people say, ah, nothing has changed. And in fact, many things have changed. So when there is a change, uh, we celebrate it with an imaginary champagne bottle. Mm-hmm. Like this, she can't, so the person can't say, you know, there has been no change. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, so, so, um, so that sense of, um, really observing what is, mm-hmm. um, and, um, um, and that, and a certain distrust of, uh, putting theory uh, somewhere between, you know, in the mm. middle of, um, in the process, you know, uh, other than as a, as a hypothesis. In my case, there's no distrust. It, it's That's where I say, when you go sufficiently in the details, mm-hmm. then you can really start thinking. So I've gone pretty much to the details of various theories. Mm-hmm. And I just don't, I just know that none of them are good enough. So I don't even need to distrust theory. <laughs> I know that it won't. It can only help me as a as a tool can help me. Mm-hmm. I, I can use you know uh, I can use knives to do that and forks to do that. But so I can use that theory to do this and that theory to do that. But uh, I can't say a theory can put itself between a person and myself. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. So. Mm. What is what when you're um, um, when you're working with clients? Not all of them come to see you because of body psychotherapy. You know, people come mostly because of their own problems and this and that. Um, how do you pay attention to the relationship? How does that relationship, uh, you know, become visible in the room? How does it affect the kind of work, uh, you know, that you do with this specific client? Well, one core concept I have is that of co-consciousness, which I stole from uh, Philippe Rochat, who's the person who wrote the 
preface to both the French and the English volume. Mm -hmm. uh, he teaches in Emory uh, University in, in Atlanta, mm -hmm. near Atlanta, in fact. And co-consciousness means that the only things I dare to work on with a patient without becoming too intrusive is what we're both conscious of at a given moment. I want, sometimes I explain something to a patient and I see he's lost. And then I say, okay, that's not a, a, a topic to work on right now. So in it's other words, it's not in the field. It's, it's only it's in you, but not in the field. I don't know how you say that in English. In French, in, in, in cooking techniques in France, we say, mettre ça en réserve. Yeah, you, you put, put it inside. inside. And I, I put, I, I write the thing down, oh, this is, uh, the person's not ready for that topic, but I mustn't forget it. Right. Uh, uh, because one the person might be, uh, uh, might, might be uh, ready for that topic. Mm -hmm. What I'm looking for is where our co-consciousness can develop. So I usually tell my patients how I understand them. Mm -hmm. And I never say, this is what you are. I say, please correct me if mm -hmm. I haven't understood you correctly. Or I have this, they often, you know, ask me, do you have a diagnostic? Uh, or do you have uh, an analysis of me? Well, I say, well, for the moment, my scenario is this one. Uh, but I don't know if it's the correct one, and we're going to have to check together. And so then we check together. Mm -hmm. So that's my way of advancing. With I think my core concept for uh, to for my advancement in therapy is that. Yeah, yeah, no, that's a wonderful that sense of um, you know that therapy is a, is a process, and both uh, the therapist and the client are very actively involved. And mm -hmm. there's a limit to, um, uh, you know, where you go if it's not shared with the client. So uh, anything can only happen within it's a shared field. Mm -hmm. And uh, and there's a very active engagement of both mm -hmm. of you um, contributing to uh, to going somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. So, so my expertise, for example, I use my expertise. I'm a psychologist, I'm a psychotherapist, so I have knowledge. Mm -hmm. And if people come to see me, it's because I have that knowledge. Plus, because I have a certain experience in how to deal with psychotherapy. So I can tell patients, you know, we have research that has found this and this and that. Do you think this could be relevant? Mm -hmm. Sometimes, for example, I use some of Ettronics. I don't know if you know. Mm -hmm. he, he works on, on repair systems, for example, and several other things by studying uh, uh, the nonverbal communication between uh, mother and children. Yeah. And sometimes I just show them the film and says, do you think there was something like that in your family? Mm. Or there's a father who refuses to speak to his children, and I show to that father, well, this is what a still face does in one minute to a child. Yours lasts now since one week. Uh, mm. What do you expect? And then you're astonished that the, the children are becoming chaotic. Or I could use the same film and say, look how children usually you know, react spontaneously. They shout, they cry, they hit, they laugh. Where's that part of you? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I can use research like that, but not again, not as a diagnostic or like saying, that proves that you are like this or that, that you have that problem, but ways of exploring oneself 
with point of views that the patient didn't have before. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so, you know, the, the image that comes to mind is, um, uh, you know, the Dickens story about the ghosts of Christmas's past and Scrooge. And uh, you're able to see yourself, to see the consequences of your action, uh, and uh, and certainly gives you a possibility that helps you actually change. Yeah. Yeah. It makes it tangible. Yeah. Digestible. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, actually, that's interesting because that um, comes back to another conversation you and I had, and uh, we're talking about, you know, what happens in therapy, what, you know, and the, and the sense of um, uh, making existential choices about where we are. And it seems very related to that. Well, existential choices are very conscious choices, very often. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm looking for what I call non-conscious uh, choices. That is, somehow, I mean, I believe that our that we're made of tools. People come in my room, and they communicate with me with the tools they have. Their way of smiling, of moving, of talking to me, of thinking, of experiencing their emotion, is what they do everywhere, every day. And I'm assuming that they don't have the tools they need, otherwise they wouldn't be in crisis. Mm -hmm. So, I'm really working on a reshuffling of automatic non-conscious tools. The, you know, all those slow movements I talked about in the beginning in non, that we study in non-verbal behavior, mm -hmm. there's no way they can be uh, uh, changed consciously. Just try and stop smoking consciously, it's a horror story, as you know, for most people who try. Uh, so all those habits, one's scratching or one's nodding when the other one speaks, or uh, all these small gestures... Uh, can never become conscious. But sometimes you can find a way of opening certain doors in a person and so somehow the reshuffling happens. Mm -hmm. And suddenly they don't... It's not that they've really made a real choice, but they notice suddenly that things are happening differently. And and then we discuss about them because some, sometimes they're worse things and sometimes they're better things. It's not always... Changes don't go only in one direction, regrettably. Right. So, so we're discussing those changes together. And some, you know, we say, ah, this is, uh, how can we avoid going in that direction? You know, some, suddenly somebody's taking drugs. Uh, that's not a good direction in terms of a psychotherapy. Everybody hmm. happens. Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. they refuse to take psychiatric medication, but they suddenly they find themselves, uh, taking more and more coke, for example. Mm -hmm. And so that all sorts of change can happen. And so so it's not that suddenly when new changes come, one has to follow them necessarily. Yeah. There's, there's Then that's where I bring in something like uh, what you talked about, like a form of responsibility of one's changes. But it's, it's good to know that one can change. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, so the sense that um, in that co-created moment, in that co-created process, uh, you as the therapist are the person who holds the hope for change. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I have nothing to add to that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
I also hold, I, I think it's not only for change, but for increasing, well, my name happens to be Heller. Mm-hmm. And Heller in German means more light. Mm-hmm. You have Hell, which means light, Heller, which means more light, and Hellist, which means a lot of light. So I've, I follow my name's uh, direction, which is clarification. Yeah. I have people to become clearer about what they can become. Mm-hmm. So I also strive to make them more honest, uh, to also accept their what, what the unions would call their shadow, mm-hmm. uh, and to learn to live with things they cannot understand. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. it's 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 both uh, strengthening one capacity, one's capacity to be aware, and strengthening the capacity for change. Yes. And, you know, what strikes me after, as we're, we're coming to the end of this, is in a way we made the conscious decision at the beginning that we were not going to talk about your book. We were talking more about you in general. But uh, in a way we come back to something that makes a lot of sense and that puts the book in a, in a, in a different light, you know, to talk about light. Uh, that that process is very similar to you having wanted to pay attention to what all the various kinds of body therapies are, what they're coming from, what their orientation is, to, to have that thinking uh, as a way for you to go beyond, you know, the specific theories or approaches and to have that own uh, more unmediated understanding of where you are. Mm-hmm. Well, that's I, I two main names. One is, of course... Allowing, allowing my colleagues to, uh, who often are stuck in a school a bit, mm-hmm. to situate their school, uh, giving them enough knowledge, because not all body psychotherapists have studied it at the university. Mm-hmm. So one of my idea was to, um, was to give them the knowledge they could have learned at the university that they don't have and which misses, which is missing for them, and therefore creates lack of confidence in them. Because mm-hmm. my idea was to say, even if you haven't done academic uh, studies, uh, once you've understood a few basic notions that you do learn in academia, um, you can also accept that there are things you will never learn in, a, in the academic world, and that you are the recipient of a form of knowledge, an exploration of people that nobody but you can have. Mm-hmm. Like the things I tried to describe to you, to you in this interview are very intimate details, in fact, if one goes into them. And if, you know, I would describe each, uh, each time a case history that corresponds to what I'm talking of, we immediately have a very deep understanding of whoever we're talking of. Mm-hmm. It's maybe not a complete understanding, but I know few people who would have such an understanding. Uh, as, for example, when I describe that massage of the back and the arm, mm-hmm. and how that brings me to psychological issues on creativity and connection, uh, psychological connection between anger and creativity and things like that. Uh, there are few people who can both follow the muscle and follow the creative process of the person. Yeah. Uh, I don't know many people who do that, apart mm-hmm. from all my colleagues. Right. Right. Great. So that's, uh, that's also... Um, a very big sign of appreciation for that very vast and uh, um, uh, diversified body of knowledge called body psychotherapy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Thanks, Michael. This recording is part of the Somatic Mindfulness and Relational Psychotherapy podcast. See the website relationalimplicit.com. Describe the massage of the back and the arm mm-hmm. and how that brings me to psychological issues on creativity and connection, uh, psychological connection between anger and creativity and things like that. Uh, there are few people who can both follow the muscle and follow the creative process of the person. Yeah. Uh, I don't know many people who do that, apart yeah. from all my colleagues. Right. Right. Great. So that's, uh, that's also um, a very big sign of appreciation for that very vast and uh, um, uh, diversified body of knowledge called body psychotherapy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thanks, Michael. This recording is part of the Somatic Mindfulness and Relational Psychotherapy podcast. See the website, relationalimplicit.com.